Good morning, New Life Church. Welcome here this morning. I'm so glad uh, that those of you who are here in the room, you're able to make it in, even though there's fewer uh, of you than uh, we would want to be here. We know that uh, there's many joining online. In fact, I, I, I'm speaking to four different audiences here at once. There's those in the overflow, classroom three. Uh, welcome to you. Those that are online on YouTube and website, uh, watching this later. And then our live group on Facebook. So uh, wherever you are, whenever you're watching this, we're glad that you're with us. And uh, I'm sorry that, uh, that Darren kind of built up this sermon a little bit. He kind of set that bar high. Wish you wouldn't have done that. Um, but uh, regardless of whether it's good or bad, long or short, it'll be long. Entertaining or not, here's, here's what I believe. I do believe that God has something to say to us as a church, and God has something to say to you. I believe that because we're going to open his word, and whenever we open God's word and, and come to it, he speaks to us. And so God has a word for you, and my prayer is that uh, we can just give our, our full attention to God and what he has for us, open up our hearts to him and our minds. Uh, if, if I was taking a, a Bible quiz and I was asked the question, where is the largest chunk of Jesus' teaching found in the Bible? I would say, got this, I'm a pastor. Easy peasy. It's got to be Gospel of John. You're like right there, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, a whole lot of red letters. Got to be the middle of the Gospel of John. And so that's what I would put. And, and I would just be totally wrong. Uh, I, I was surprised to discover over these last few weeks as we've begun this series that the largest section of uninterrupted teaching of Jesus is found in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? The, 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 the most red letters in a row are found in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three. These words that we're going through together over these eight weeks. And so that was kind of a new discovery for me and I don't think we probably um, think of Jesus talking to us in this place of the Bible. And so we've maybe never given a whole lot of attention to these words of Jesus. And so I'm just really excited to be able to, to spend time in them over these weeks together. Uh, so it's unique in that way, these words we're looking at. It's also unique in that all the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus found in the Gospels, are all kind of pre-church. You know, that teaching that created the church. But here we have the teaching of Jesus that corrects the church to the church that already exists. And so it's kind of unique in that way. And so if you haven't uh, been with us over the last number of weeks, we're in the middle, week four of an eight-week eight week series uh, through the seven letters of Jesus that we find in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three. Seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches, real churches, real people, real places uh, in, in history. And, and then it's these fascinating letters that I don't know if you read them, like, it's obvious it's written to different people at a different place in, in, in history um, and in the world. And it can kind of feel like we're almost ent entering a conversation that we don't belong in, right? There's all these details that seem like maybe they're not really directed at us, and yet we're discovering they really are. These are Jesus' letters to us, New Life Church, 2,000 years after they were first written. Jesus speaks to us, and in these seven letters, we're discovering that Jesus gives us the seven marks of a healthy Christian, a se seven marks of a healthy church. And so over these weeks, we're just discovering what does it look like to live the Christian life? What does it look like to be a Christian church? 
And so a couple weeks ago when we began, we began with the letter to Ephesus. We found that uh, one of the marks of a healthy church is to be fervent in love. We want to be a church and people that are fervent in love. Last week when we looked at the, uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna, Darren preached, and we found that uh, another mark is, is to be patient in suffering. As Christians and as a church, we're called to be patient in suffering. And this morning we're looking at the third letter, the letter to the church in Pergamum, which we find in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Now this is an interesting one to unpack. And so if you have your Bible with you, turn to Revelation chapter 2. We'll start at verse 12. Uh, the words will also be up on the screen here. <clears throat> now these are the words of Jesus to us as church. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Interesting. A number of years ago, doctors uh, did a study. They selected 10 teenagers to do a test on perception. What they did is, is they gathered these 10 teenagers in a room, and then the researcher held up a card, and on the card were three lines of varying lengths. Uh, the researcher asked the teenagers to raise their hand when he pointed at the longest line on the page. What one person in the room didn't know was that the other nine teenagers were told to raise their hand at the second longest line, not the longest line. This actually wasn't a study in perception, it was a study in peer pressure, but that 10th teenager didn't know it. And so when that researcher point, uh, pointed to that second longest line, right away nine hands shot up. And that 10th teenager kind of blinked a few times, he looked at the paper, he looked around him at the other nine holding up their hands, and slowly and hesitantly, he raised his hand as well. Then the researcher pulled out another card with three more lines, and he pointed to the second longest line, and immediately the nine hands shot up, and, and a little more quickly, the tenth hand went up. And this happened time and time again until that tenth hand went up around the same time all the other nine did. In fact, uh, the researchers did this test over 100 times, 100 different groups, and they found that in 75% of their groups, that 10th uh, that teenager put up his hand with the other nine every single time. The power of peer pressure. Now, I, I don't think this is probably a lesson so much in the teenage mind as it is really in the human condition. Each one of us as human beings, we are susceptible to the pressure and the influence of those around us. This was the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum was a lot like this 10th teenager. Uh, 
giving in, we're going to find a peer pressure in order to conform to the majority opinion. In that sense, this really is a letter that feels that, that it's kind of like written for us today in 2020 where we're at in the world, in our society. We are a lot like the church in Pergamum. We are faced with pressures every day to conform to the patterns around us, to the beliefs and the behaviors that surround us. We're a lot like the church in Pergamum. So I, I really believe that this letter has a lot to say to us today. But to understand what this letter means to us, what Jesus is saying to us, we've got to do a little digging here, a little history, which I think is fun, both biblical history and, and just kind of general history. Now, you've probably never heard of the Church of Pergamum before, in, in other than maybe reading this section in the Bible. Uh, most cities and towns, even today, like they have a claim to fame, right? Uh, Stonewall, I'm not sure where the quarry, where the quarry city, quarry town. Most have uh, maybe a nickname that's on their sign or, or maybe they identify a famous person that came from that place, right? And so I'm from Medicine Hat, Alberta, and if you've driven through Medicine Hat, when you come into town, there's a sign that says, Medicine Hat, the, you know what it is? The gas city. We are proud. We are the gas city. Not for that reason. It's because there's a lot of natural gas under the town, all these reserves, and so we're kind of known for that, the natural gas industry. Now, interestingly, when you go just down the highway towards Lethbridge, the next town is Bow Island, and if you've been to Bow Island, you know that along the highway there's a statue of the world's largest uh, pinto bean because Bo Bow Island is the bean capital of Canada. So I don't know if there's like a connection between like the bean capital of Canada and Gas City right next door. I have no idea what that's all about. Yes, that was an inappropriate joke for church. So when we look at this letter, what was Pergamum? Well, Jesus twice refers to this as Satan's hometown. The place where Satan lives has his throne. Hmm, interesting. What does he mean by that? You know, like often you go to Carmen, Manitoba, right? It's the hometown of? Who came from Carmen? Come on. Who came from Carmen? Ed Belfort. Eddie the Eagle Belfort, right? Goaltender, Chicago Blackhawks. Come on. I'm starting to feel old here. Anyone else remember Eddie the Eagle? Well, it's Carmen. So, so maybe if you came into Pergamum, what does this mean? Like, would it say hometown of Satan? What does this mean? Probably what, what Jesus means isn't that like somehow there's, there's, the, there's the, the spiritual or physical presence of, of Satan in this place. Uh, like this is kind of where he dwells so much as I think Jesus is saying is Pergamum if he had a hometown, it would be Pergamum, right? Like he would fit right in in this place, Satan. It's that sort of place that these Christians lived. I mean, Pergamum, it was an important city. It was a principal city. It vied with Ephesus for kind of the top place. It used to be the capital city of the province of Asia. It was known at that time as in the world one of the main centers of learning, of education, of knowledge, and of medicine. It would have been like the Harvard of its day. If Ephesus as a trade center might have been like the New York of its day, Pergamum would have been the Harvard of its day, okay? It, um, it was a center of learning. It had what was, uh, at that time, maybe the largest library in the world. It had 200,000 books in this library, which maybe today doesn't sound all that impressive, but back then, you know how they created books by hand? Like, that's a lot of books. 200,000 books 
all these ideas and all this knowledge and people came from all over the place to access this knowledge. Uh, and in fact, the word parchment, parchment on which books were written, come, that word comes from the word Pergamum. It's because parchment was invented in Pergamum. So it was kind of that center of knowledge, of learning. It was also a center of medicine. In fact, there was a temple there. The main temple in the city of Pergamum was a temple, uh, and, and what, what the city was known for was the temple to Asclepius. Now, Asclepius was the Roman or the Greek god of healing and medicine. People came from all over to seek healing at this temple. And uh, the, the symbol of the god Asclepius was the symbol of a serpent, a snake. In fact, we have this, uh, throughout all of history, 2,000 years later, we still have the symbol called the rod of Asclepius that we see all the time. In fact, the World Health Organization um, has as the center the rod of Asclepius. Okay, the, the, the serpent on the rod. And if you have a medical bracelet that has snakes intertwined around a rod, it's, it's the rod of Asclepius. It came from this temple. And so the sick would come to this place and uh, apparently snakes had healing powers. And so they would, they would make, the, the priests of this, this temple would make the, the sick lay on the floor of the temple at night during pitch darkness while snakes crawled all over their bodies to impart healing to them. Aren't you glad you were like born in the 20th century? <laughs> But this was, this was cutting-edge medicine of their day, cutting-edge knowledge. And so the sick came from all over the world here to find healing in Pergamum. Okay, so this was where these, these Christians lived. Okay, they were surrounded with this place which supposedly was a place of wisdom and knowledge. All sorts of these ideas and practices surrounded them. And Jesus commends them in this letter for not renouncing his name. He says, you have not renounced my name. You have, you, have, like, you have not given up calling me Lord and Savior of your life. Even though some of you, this guy Antipas, he was even put to death for his faith. But Jesus does have a problem with what's happening here. He has, he has a, a word of correction for this church. We find it in verse 14. When he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak uh, to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now this is referencing biblical history. Now some of you, those names are familiar, Balaam and Balak. But let's just go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 22. God had delivered his people, the people of Israel, from slavery in Egypt, leading them into the promised land. They were on their way. They stopped to camp on the border of the nation called Moab. And so they were encamped on the plain. The king of Moab, Balak, he saw this powerful people, the people of Israel. He felt threatened by them. And so he wanted to enlist a prophet, a well-known prophet by the name of Balaam to pronounce curses on the people of God so that Balak could overpower them and defeat God's people. And so he propositions Balaam, says, I'm gonna make you wealthy. I'm gonna give you all this money if you would pronounce a curse on God's people. Well, as much as Balaam wanted to do that, God would not allow him to pronounce a curse. Four times, Balaam kept going back to God for permission to curse his people, but each time God put blessing in his mouth to pronounce over the people of God. They just could not be cursed. Um, in fact, there in, in Numbers, one of the things that God through Balaam says over the people of Israel is Balaam stood on the mountaintop looking over the, the, the camp. Um, 
some of God, the, God's prophecy through Balaam is, uh, he says, I see a people that live apart, that do not consider themselves one of the nations. I see a people set apart. That word set apart actually means holy. I see a holy people set apart who do not consider themselves one of the nations. So this whole curse thing wouldn't work. But I guess if you can't curse them, then you corrupt them, right? So Balaam and Balak hatched a plan. What they were going to do is they were going to invite some of the men from Israel to come to a party with a bunch of Moabite women and there would be lots of drink and lots of feasting and there would be religious activity to the gods of Moab and they would uh, be engaging in all sorts of the Moabite activities. And so they invited all these men and they came and they feasted and they partied and they engaged in the activity of the Moabites, spiritual rituals to their gods, engaging in their activities, including um, immoral sexual acts that God had forbid. In fact, we find out as the story continues that some of them married some of these Moabite women and brought them into the people of God. Now, we, we have uh, co-racial marriages, which is beautiful and awesome, but, but these were co-spiritual marriages of different belief systems and behaviors. And, and, and because of this re these relationships, there started to be this blending of beliefs and blending of behaviors. And the people of God now were compromising themselves by engaging in activities that God had forbidden his law and believing things that were contrary to what God had said. They'd compromise themselves. Uh, here we have the lesson, if you can't, Defeat them, join them, right? Satan couldn't defeat God's people from the outside with outside pressure, but only from the inside, kind of through that Trojan horse. And so in this story, we see that God's people had been compromised. And so obviously the church in Pergamum, he said, this very thing is happening. You are compromised, you are giving into pressure and compromising, conforming to the pattern of the world around you. And then he references the Nicolaitans there in 15. He says, Jesus says, likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't really know a lot about who these people were. Um, that comes from the word Nicholas, the Greek name Nicholas. And probably that they were a group of Christians who believed, hey, God is a God of grace and he's a God of mercy and he's a God of forgiveness. So it's okay if we do these other things because God's gonna forgive us. God's grace covers all of it. It doesn't really matter how we live because God is a God of grace and so they too engaged in all of these other activities. They conform to the pattern of the world. They just carried on living like they had before. It's interesting here, you know the word Balaam, the name Balaam is actually the, the Hebrew name, uh, the Hebrew word for rule, of the people, rule of the people. The, the name Nicholas is the Greek word that means rule of the people. Both of these names mean rule of the people, which is kind of interesting. I, I think what it's referring to is living by the wisdom of man, the wisdom of people, human wisdom, which really was a, the problem at the very beginning, wasn't it? If you go back to when God makes man and woman and, and he, and he gives him his instruction and he puts him in this beautiful world and he says, hey, I don't want you to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then the serpent, it's kind of interesting, the serpent comes and he says, did God really say that? The woman says, yeah, God says we couldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, come on, now God's trying to keep something good from you, right? 
So he, he knows that if you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. Well, what's wrong with knowing the difference between good and evil? Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's, what he's saying is you will be like God. You will be the one who determines what is good and what is evil. You will, use, you, will, you will have the wisdom to determine what is true and false, good and bad. That was the problem from the beginning, living by the wisdom of man and not the wisdom and the word of God. So Pergamum had this problem. It had conformed. It was giving in to pressure. It was what we might call a progressive church, and that's what I've named this sermon, progressive in Pergamum. Now that word progressive, we hear it a little bit in a, in a political context, Right? Normally it means instead of trying to retain and, and kind of protect and keep doing what we're doing, we need to change. Change is good. Change is necessary. We should always be changing. We should be progressive. And, and we live in what we might call a progressive society. In fact, as Canadians, we, we use that to describe ourselves. We are a progressive society, unlike what? Those some other places in the world that are primitive societies, that live in the past, that don't change. We are progressive and open-minded, always changing, because change is good and necessary. And, and yet Paul says in Romans 12 too, he says, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. And we face pressure all the time as Christians to conform to the pattern of the world. Just like that story I told at the beginning of that study on peer pressure. We face pressure to raise our hands. Why? Why, why, do we, why are we conformist by nature? It's at least two reasons, right? I mean, we don't want to stick out. We don't want to be the oddball. We don't want to be on the outside. And so we can give in to pressure to conform to the ways of those around us. Or, or maybe we start to question our own wisdom or God's wisdom in the face of the wisdom of the majority. Well, if everybody else is raising their hand, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe they're all right. I'll just raise my hand. We second guess ourselves in the face of the majority. We have this propensity to conform, but Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renew your mind, Christians. What does that mean, to renew your mind? I think we kind of get an answer in this letter. It's interesting how Jesus introduces himself here. In fact, there's often a connection between the way Jesus chooses to introduce himself to the church and then the situation that's going on in that church. It's like, you need to see me in a certain way because of what you're going through. And so last week to the church in Smyrna, suffering church, a persecuted church, Jesus introduced himself as the one who had died but had come back to life. And then he said to them, I know what you're going through, your affliction, you think you're poor yet you're rich. And now how does he introduce himself to the church in Pergamum? Well, he says in verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He talks about himself as the one who holds a sword. And in fact, a few verses later in verse 16, he says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. What is a sword all about? There's a clue here. Now, we think of a sword, we think this is like a weapon, right? This is an act of violence. Now, back in those days, a sword was a representation of authority and judgment, 
right? When Paul talks to the Christians in Romans 13, when he talks about the government, the governing authorities, he says God has given them the right to bear the sword, which is he has given them the authority to make judgments, right? And so the, the, the sword was the symbol of judgment, the ability to distinguish between right and wrong, good and bad, truth and falsehood. And so there's this connection between the sword in the Bible and God's word, right? In Ephesians 6, the armor of God, it says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the spirit is God's word. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12, picks up on this idea between the sword and God's word. When he says this, Hebrews 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to, the dividing, uh, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the word of God is like a double-edged sword here which is able to distinguish between right or wrong and God's word is perfect in the ability to do that because nothing is, is, is unknown to God, which is what it said. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him. So what is the sword that Jesus is talking about? It's the word of God. And that that word, he's saying to the church, that word must be your authority in all things. And so I think the message of this letter to us is this. Because God's word is unchanging, our commitment to it must be uncompromising. This is the takeaway. If God's word is unchanging, our commitment to it must be uncompromising. And when I talk about God's word, I'm talking about this the Bible, the word of God that reveals, in which he reveals himself to us, who he is as God, who we are, how we can have relationship with him and how he wants us to live, how we can have life. He has revealed that to us completely and perfectly in his word. We believe as a church that all scripture is God-breathed. It is God's very word to us and it is our ultimate authority in all matters of faith and practice. Interestingly, if you go back to that story of Balaam in the desert, Numbers 23, another thing that he prophesies over the people, he says this, Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, not a man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Think of that. God is not like you. God is not a man that he should lie because sometimes we lie. Sometimes we're deceitful. We don't tell the truth. God always tells the truth. God is truth. He cannot lie. God is not a man that he should lie, not a man that he should change his mind. God doesn't progress or grow. Like hopefully you are changing your mind from time to time. I mean, hopefully there's things in your life where you go, I used to believe that, I don't believe that anymore. I used to do that, now I don't do that anymore. Now I know better. I've grown more mature. I've grown more wise. I know more stuff. But God never changes his mind. He doesn't grow or mature or get smarter because God is perfectly wise. 
God knows everything. Perfect in knowledge, perfect in wisdom. And so this God, when he speaks, he never changes his mind. He never learns anything new, unlike you or me. And so it says, God is not a man that he should lie, not a man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? In other words, not only is God's word unchanging, but God's word is unfailing. It will never fail. He will ensure that every word he has spoken will be accomplished. It will be fulfilled. Every promise he has made, he will keep. God's word is unchanging because God is unchanging. Right? It says in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. He is perfect in knowledge and wisdom and power and love. And because he's unchanging, his word and his will never does. It's complete. It's perfect. Aren't you glad that that God in his love for us gave us his word, like revealed himself, who he is and, and, and who we are? and how to have the life that we can have, that he created us to have, to live the best life? Aren't you, like just think of that for a moment. We don't often like look at this and go, oh God, thank you so much for my Bible. Thank you so much for for speaking and preserving these words for us. But just think of what an awesome reality that is, that we have God's perfect word and wisdom, that we are not just trapped in our own wisdom, human wisdom, that is always changing always changing. There was stuff a generation ago that they said gave you cancer and now you're supposed to have it. Or you were supposed to have it, but now it gives you cancer. And we thought that was good, but now we thought, think this was good and tomorrow human wisdom is gonna change again. And you know, now the, you, you read stuff, articles, and, and I'm seeing it more and more. Well, what is human? Now human wisdom is, you know, marriage isn't really that good. Marriage is abnormal. To like yoke yourself with another in monogamy, really what's good for you is open relationships. The wisdom of man, right? Trying to grope around in the dark to find the best Way, but as David said in the Psalms, he says, Your word, God, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Without it, I'm just like a man groping around in darkness trying to find my way. But you light the path through your word. What a blessing that is. We're not like one of, a little boy that has a father that knows the way to live, that knows what's good, and has chosen not to share it, to just let his boy figure it out and flounder and fail. But God in his love for us has given us his word, his way. Everything we need to know to know him and to live the life that we were created to live. Isn't that awesome? We don't have to lay in a temple being covered with snakes. Isn't that awesome? You know, if that's true, what Jesus is saying here, then then one of the marks of his church is that we are uncompromising in truth. That's what Jesus is saying in this letter, that one of the marks of a Christian and a true church is that it is uncompromising in the truth. It does not conform to the pattern of human wisdom, which is always changing, like the sea, this way and that way. 
So in, our, our, in, in the last few minutes here, what does that mean? What does it look like to be Christians and to be a church that's uncompromising with truth, that doesn't give in to pressure, that doesn't conform to the pattern of the world? I just want to quickly suggest five things. It means that, first of all, that, that we want to be in church and people that are spending time in our Bible. I mean, how often do you open it? How much are you in it? How deeply do you study it? in person, as a family, as a church. You can't, you can't uh, be uncompromised in the truth if you don't know the truth. If you don't know God's word, you can't hold to God's word. And God's word is life. So church, we need to be people that are spending time in God's word. Because we understand how awesome it is that we have it. And so for those of you who are parents in the room and, and those that might be watching at home, um, we don't have Sunday school here Sunday mornings and kids connect on Tuesday. Obviously a few kids come but there's many families that can't and, and we want families to, to learn God's word together at home. That's where we should be learning it, at church but at home. And so families, there's a new resource that gets emailed out every Tuesday that allows you, that, that equips you with your kids to open your Bible and to learn God's word together to grow in that. So parents, take advantage of that and grow in that with your kids. Spend time as a family in the Bible. You can't hold to God's word if you don't know God's word. So, so one, spend time in the Bible. The other thing this means is that truth is not personal. Truth is universal. Truth is not personal. Truth is universal. And we live in a time where, we, yeah, we talk about truth, but a lot of people talk about truth as if it's my truth and your truth. And there are different truths, as if truth is kind of like music, right? Is, is our faith like a jar of jelly beans, or is our faith like music? No, like with a jar of jelly beans, there's, there's a certain number of jelly beans in there, and you can guess, and you might be right or you might be wrong, but there's a certain number of jelly beans in that jar. But sometimes I think that faith for many has become like our favorite song. If I were to say this song is right, you would say there's no such thing as a right song or a wrong song. It's whatever moves you. It's whatever works for you. And, and, and if this is true, what Jesus is saying is that God's word is the supreme authority for us, then that truth is not personal. That is universal truth. It is for all people of all places of all times. We don't outgrow it. What that means is that we can't pick and choose what we will believe and hold to and accept and do. It means that we must call others to it. It's not just my truth. It's not just a truth. It's the truth. The truth of God and his word. And the most loving thing you can do is to call other people to the truth. Truth is universal, not personal. The third thing we need to understand is while our methods change, our message doesn't. You know, in some ways, we better be a church that's changing all the time. If, I mean, if, we're, if, if we look and do everything exactly the same in five years as we do today, then we're failing as a church. Church, our methods always need to be changing because our world is changing around us all the time and we need to be constantly adapting so that we can effectively communicate the unchanging truth of the gospel to our world so that they might understand it. We want to speak in a way that can be understood, right? Like as Paul said, to the Greeks, I'm like a Greek. To the Gentiles, 
I, I, I act kind of like a Gentile. I, I am all things to all people so that I may win some. And what he's saying is I don't do the things they do. I, I, I speak and I do things in a way that they can understand the unchanging truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his word. You know, there's, there's no one right way to dress in church. There's no one right style of music to worship to. There's no one right way to build a building and fashion a worship space. There's no one right way to do a worship service. There's no one right way of doing ministry. Our methods, like for instance, that great old classic, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, you know it? A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You can almost, you can almost like see those Germans with their big beer steins swaling them like this. It's because that, was a, that wasn't always a classic. There was a time that wasn't a classic. You know that, right? I mean, there was a time that was the bar tune in the bars in Germany, and Martin Luther took the bar tune and he put gospel words to it so that they would hear and understand and be drawn to the unchanging truth of the gospel. And the church has always been doing and must always continue to change our methods, but never change our message because while there might not be one right way to dress or do music or build churches or do ministry, there is only one gospel. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. So while our methods change, our message must never change. It is the unchanging truth of God's word and our world needs it. Fourthly, peace is good, but it's not the highest good. Like we're Canadians. What, is, what are the two most Canadian words in the world? Two most Canadian words. What do you think? Sorry. Well, that's one word. Sorry, eh? <laughs> the people in the first service, they said the same thing. They said sorry, and I said I asked for two words, and they all shouted out, eh? Sorry, eh? Close. I mean, that would work, but I was thinking I'm sorry. I mean, we, 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 we kind of pride ourselves on, on like being as unoffensive as we can be, Right? as peaceable as we can be. And that's great. It is good to be peaceable people. We're called to be peaceable people. We're called to seek peace, but we're not called to make peace the highest good because it isn't. It is not the highest good. You know, in order for someone to be changed and to know God and, and to know the life that he gives, they have to be converted. And before they can be converted, they have to be convicted. And before we're convicted, we have to be made uncomfortable and disturbed in our own life, in our own sin, in our own beliefs and practices, right? The only way into the kingdom of heaven is by a little bit of offense and discomfort. And so we don't seek it. Um, It's inevitable. You know, I, I think it's so easy as Christians, you know, in our own conversations with people and as a church here to, to, to keep the, in order to keep the peace, to, to just be uh, intentionally a little ambiguous with the things that we feel might be harder to hear. But God says. But we need to hear those things. People need to hear those things. So what, what Jesus is saying is don't be a church that avoids the hard bits. A lot of churches and Christians avoiding the hard bits. Don't be a church that avoids the hard bits. Like Paul said, he said, I have 
proclaimed the whole counsel of God. Don't avoid the hard bits and don't be ashamed of God's truth. I mean, there's, there's times when I feel, I do, I, I feel almost a little awkward or gun-shy or embarrassed to share something that I know is true and wonderful about God and His Word and His way. Why do I feel that way? We ought not to be ashamed of God's truth, for the Bible says it is the power of God to save. It is the power of God to change. Let's not be ashamed of God's truth ever, for it is good. So peace is good, but it's not the highest good. And then fifthly and finally, what Jesus is saying here is church Christians, live for the approval of God instead of living for the approval of men. Live for the approval of God instead of living for the approval of men because you know what you can't do? You can't live for both. You can't have both. James says in the book of James, to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. We have to make choices. Every day, will we live for the approval of God or for the approval of the world? You know, the Christians in Pergamum, they face that pressure every day. Every day when they went to the marketplace in order to transact business, maybe in the square, they'd have to take a pinch of incense and put it in the incense burner as an offering up to a god. Just part of doing business. And when, and when a guy, a carpenter who was a Christian, when he went to his like union meeting, when he went to the guild, which was a big thing back in those days, and in those guild meetings, they had feasts, but they had uh, prayers and sacrifices to the gods. You would have to maybe mouth certain words, certain declarations or prayers or certain activities that you might need to do to be a part of the guild. There were expectations. And these Christians, they had to make choices every day. Were they going to tick the boxes of the people around them? Were they going to conform? And really, it's no different for us, too. And I know there's some young people, there's some teenagers in the room, some young adults, probably faces more than anybody else right now. The pressure to conform to the patterns of the world around lifestyle choices about sexuality and gender, material possessions, relationships, all sorts of ways that we feel face pressure every day to conform to engage in crude conversations just to kind of fit in. I remember when I was working on the road crew, 70 other guys, four summers in a row, working on the road crew, all the pressure just to involve myself and just partake in the crude conversations, laugh at the obscene things I knew I ought not to laugh at, to maybe affirm the causes that tend to be the most fashionable causes of our day, that everyone in their right mind who's on the right side of history, whatever that means, has to affirm. To show our worth and our possessions the way our neighbor does, which is what it means when we say keeping up to the Joneses. What is that? That's conforming to the pattern of the world. To project our worth and our standing in our possessions. That would be a way of conforming. So, so a question we need to ask ourselves is what pressure or temptation to compromise and conform do you face? What does that look like in your life? The pressure or temptation to compromise God's word. 
Are there ways in your life, is there, are there ways in the life of this church that we are seeking the approval of others instead of the approval of God? Maybe seeking to be cool, so to speak, to fit in, instead of doing what's right, holding to God's truth. You know, Jesus closes his letter to, to Pergamum um, in an interesting way. And I mean, it would take probably a whole sermon to unpack it. But he says in verse 17, at the end of the letter, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. If you overcome, if you hold fast to my truth, if you do not compromise and conform, I'm gonna give you a white stone with a new name on it. Now those people knew what that meant. Now back in that day, like your ticket to the, to the party, to the exclusive party, your gold ticket was a white stone that had your name on it. That was your ticket in. And what Jesus is saying is, is church, don't, don't strive to be in those parties. Don't seek to, to have approval from the world. It's okay if you're shut out and you don't get a white stone over there because you are true to my word because I am gonna give you a better white stone. I'm gonna give you entrance to a better party, a better feast, a better place to the kingdom of God. And when the world passes away with all of its wisdom, it's just the kingdom of God that will remain. The world passes away, but his word endures forever. So Jesus is saying to us, church and Christians, don't live for the approval of men. Live for the approval of God. Don't conform. Don't compromise. And Jesus, in his final prayer before he died on the cross, prayed a powerful prayer that we have recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And he actually prayed for you. Did you know that? Jesus says, my prayer is not for them, his 12 disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, okay? And um, this is his prayer. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Father, sanctify them by, tr by the truth. Your word is truth. That's Jesus' prayer for us. God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world so that they, 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 like, they retreat from the world. No, I want them to be embedded in the world, in schools and workplaces and neighborhoods and everywhere. But Lord, help them not to conform to the world in those places, but instead to be salt and light in the world. May it be said of us what Balaam prophesied over the people of God those thousands of years ago when he said, I see a people set apart who do not consider themselves one of the nations. Like that's my prayer for us. May we be a people that's set apart for God. A people that do not just consider ourselves as one of the nations because we can only be useful for the world to the degree that we are different from the world. 
We can only be useful for the world to the degree that we are distinctive from the world. The best thing we can be, the most loving thing we can be for our neighbors is different, is uncompromising to God's truth. And so, because God's word is unchanging, our commitment to it must be uncompromising. Let, let, let that be the mark, that mark that marks us as a church and marks each one of us who belong to Jesus. Uncompromising in truth. I just want to invite you into a moment of prayer as the worship team comes up here. Just to invite you to um, um, talk to God, each one of us right now. And the first thing I want to invite you to do is just take a moment to thank God for his word that he has given to you. When's the last time you did that? You actually thanked and praised God that he has given you his word, which is his love for you. Take a moment and thank God for that. Thank you, God, that you have made yourself known. That you don't have to guess. Take another moment and ask, ask God to renew your love and desire for his word. Maybe some of us, like our, our desire to be in our Bibles has grown stale. We have gotten out of that healthy, holy habit of, of feeding our minds and our hearts on his word. Just ask God to renew your desire and your love for his word. And lastly, uh, just ask God if there's any way in your life uh, in which you're compromising his word, compromising the truth, conforming to the pattern of the world. Just ask God to search your life. Maybe there's something that already comes to mind. And if so, just ask uh, God to give you the power, the ability to hold fast to his word, to not compromise. Father God, we thank you that in your love for us, you have made yourself known. We don't have to guess who you are. We don't have to guess who we are as human beings and wonder what our life is all about. We don't have to guess about our future. We don't have to guess about what you want from us. We don't have to guess about what is the way to live the best life. Lord, you have made all of these things known to us. We thank you that in your love for us, you have given us your word, which is complete and it's perfect. I just pray, God, that, that we would just have a renewed and deeper love and affection for your word and a desire to be in it, to feast on it, to be nourished by it. Lord, that it might be food for us, that just sustains us, that propels us forward in our life, that allows us to, to be the people you want us to be and do the things that you call us to do. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, give us the ability as New Life Church and as, uh, as individuals and families just to live in an uncompromised way in this world, to not conform to the pattern around us, but to stand for you, to live for your pleasure and for your approval. So God, we just declare again that we will build our lives on you, your word and your love.
In Jesus' name, amen.